song you just heard is Dog of War by the Hell Yeah Babies, which means I'm Nick Bond. He's David Gibb. And this is how wrestling explains the world. Dave, I don't think I've ever been more excited to record a podcast in my entire life than the hour. I'm going to say six hour podcast we're about to record right now. Wow. Six is like a little more excited than me, definitely. But but I am also excited to talk about this for um, up to a certain amount of time, maybe a little less than six hours. <laughs> we are, of course, going to be talking about The Music Man, which... Uh, as I always say, as, as Dave's known me uh, for a very long time, so he knows that The Music Man is basically my favorite piece of entertainment ever. Uh, but I had not realized how good this was going to be for the show. Like, the amount of wrestling-related topics in this is kind of off the charts. There's even a line... She's right! A man's a by-God spellbinder! I haven't seen Iowa people get so excited since the night Frank Gutz and Stranger Lewis lay on the mat for three and a half hours without moving a muscle. Oh, that was exciting. Where they talk about wrestling, professional wrestling specifically as a way to indicate, uh, I guess how you would say, how big of marks the people in this town are. Um, because the story is essentially, uh, it's about a professor named Harold Hill who comes to a small town or city, whatever you want to call it, called River City, Iowa, and uh, he is a traveling salesperson, uh, which is read to be a con man, especially like him in particular is a particular kind of con man. But it's implied that all of the traveling salesmen are kind of not on the level. Um, right. I think that's a fair assessment of traveling salesmen in that story, like like hucksters, I guess, in that story are they're all kind of treated that way. Yeah, they're definitely portrayed as like uh, grasping and, and really trying to, you know, figure out how can we shake the money out of these people, like in, the, in that whole first scene where they're talking about how, oh, the car has killed the business. Oh, uh, the, the, the grocery store has killed the business. They're very pro wrestling there. But yeah, he's someone who, as this traveling sales business is start, across the Midwest is starting to dry up, he's someone who's kind of maintained his success by transitioning from being a salesman salesman to being like a, a confidence man salesman. Yeah, like, uh, and I think it's important to recognize, and there are a couple of problems with this movie um, that are actually like, problematic but one of the weird things in this movie is that you're supposed to root for someone who is a con man but at the same time he is not because he comes to town to sell uh and we're gonna get into the clip in a couple of minutes but uh, he comes to town to sell uh band equipment and band uniforms and it's also implied and he doesn't just imply it he flat out says it he has a a learning technique called the oh my god i'm blanking the uh oh my god <laughs> the think method or the, the think method. method yeah yeah the, the think, think method. method if you just think of it you'll be able to play it and um basically what he does is he sells them the band uniforms and the band equipment with the idea he's going to teach them but he still like gives them something and i think that's an important distinction is that it, he is like an, a professional wrestler professional wrestling promoter in that sense that he is actually like giving them something but not exactly what they want or what they were promised yeah definitely that's a good way of putting it i mean he is a true confidence man uh in the you know what he is basically selling these people is feeling good about themselves uh but his way of doing it is indirect and i mean he does uh make a real difference for for one character you know in the show so it, it's proven that you know there is kind of some efficacy to his approach um, but but at the same time, he is a con artist. Like that, that's very transparent. 
And he's also kind of a creep. Like we're supposed to be kind of rooting for him to seduce a very kind of respectable woman who tells him she's not interested in him very clearly over and over again. But like the play makes you root for him to win her over and for her to be won over more importantly, which, which I guess is kind of slimy and weird, but like you said, he's a, he's a good guy, but he's definitely a problematic protagonist. Yeah. And and I think in the context of like the modern times, it is especially weird, but you also have to remember that the music man is a, a play that was written in the, I believe the late 1950s. It was a movie in 1962 and it was about a community in their, early uh teens so 1912 Mm -hmm. i believe so you have to like triple contextualize it that's not to say that there aren't problematic songs in particular like shapoopy is not just a bad song it's like a really gross song about like how if a girl kisses after but i think even in the context of that they're like winking at how ridiculous the sexual mores of that time were, but it's also Buddy Hackett singing it. So at least in the movie, it's not a good song at all. Yeah. And and I think they were kind of pointing out in a critical way there, um, sort of a trope of movies and in particular movie musicals, which is like the, the woman starts off as being, uh, independent and not needing love, but she just doesn't know how bad she needs it until she meets this guy who's like oh so smart and and is going to somehow break through her armor. Like that's a very you know tried trick or trope of that era. Like we talked about, like uh, His Girl Friday is a movie we've brought up a couple of times on this show before, and so some of those kind of golden age of Hollywood movies that that was a big running theme in there, and I think. In some ways, they were analyzing that here, but in some ways, they were still just reflecting it in ways that were still problematic. Oh, yeah, totally. Uh, Though I think that she is Shirley Jones, who is the woman who plays Marion the Librarian. Uh, She has a surprising amount of agency in the story. Like, she is the one person in town, because she's a librarian, she finds out very early that he is a con man. Uh, but she doesn't tell anybody because she kind of likes him. And one of the people Dave mentioned that she that he helps is her little brother who has a lisp and hasn't spoken since their father died. So I think like he gets him out of his shell and she sees the good in him because and, and we're going to play the clip now so you can kind of get a feeling for him if you haven't watched it. A really important thing, and it's something we're going to talk about later. If you haven't seen this show try and watch the Robert Preston version of it from 1962 because he is Harold Hill. Like, you'll meet him right now. I'm going to play the clip. Now, I know all you folks are the right kind of parents. I'm going to be perfectly frank. Would you like to know what kind of conversation goes on while they're loafing around that hall? They were trying out Bevo, trying out Cubabs, trying out tailor-maids like cigarette fiends, and bragging all about how they're going to cover up a telltale breath with sense and one fine night. They leave the pool hall, heading for the dance at the armory, libertine men and scarlet women, and ragtime, shameless music that'll grab your son, your daughter, with the arms of a jungle, animal instinct, masteria. Friends, the idle brain is the devil's playground. Trouble! Right here in River City. With a capital T and that rhymes with P and that stands for poo. We've surely got trouble. Right here in River City. Gotta figure out a way to keep the young ones moral after school. Mothers of River City. Heed that warning before it's too late. Watch for the telltale signs of corruption. The minute your son leaves the house, does he rebuckle his knickerbockers below the knee? 
Is there a nicotine stain on his index finger? A dime novel hidden in the corn crib? Is he starting to memorize jokes from Captain Billy's whiz-bang? Are certain words creeping into his conversation? Words like, like swell. Throw, throw. Aha, and so's your old man. Throw, throw. But if so, my friends, we got trouble. Oh, we got trouble. Right here in River City. Right here in River City. With a capital T, and that rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. That stands for pool. We surely got trouble. We surely got trouble. Right here in River City. Right here. Remember the main Plymouth Rock and the Golden Rule. We got trouble. We're in terrible, terrible trouble. That game with the 15 numbered balls is the devil's tool. Devil's tool. Oh, yes, we got trouble, trouble, trouble. Oh, yes, we got trouble. like about this song uh, in particular is it kind of shows the ways in which the people of Iowa uh, and specifically River City Iowa want to be led around by Harold Hill um like at the end of the song he says I come through this way but once listen to me I come through this way but once he's kind of like I'm telling you what I'm doing and you still want it, so sure. Like at the end, also at the end of the song, he kind of chuckles when he's like, "We got big, big trouble." Like he knows he has them locked in. And there's uh, the most important part to me, though, is the uh, the part where he's going and he's explaining what's going to happen at the pool, t- the pool parlor, the billiard parlor, and um, he goes and he's like fishing for something to get them riled up, and he goes uh, words like like swell and they go trouble trouble and that part is like them him getting the audience in the way that like a wrestler would into the move he's about to do like they know it's coming they have like agreed that this is the thing they want to see and he knows he has them like he goes um he says that and then he says uh you got trouble and then um he, you hear like the the music the bang bang and that's like when you know he has the entire town because he's literally at that point running around like a pentecostal minister like doing hands like i don't religious hands like praise hands like <laughs> religious hands you know like yeah, like yeah, yeah. just like pra- praise hands and he has them hook line and sinker like i watched it with kate uh, a couple weeks ago and she's like is he supposed to be like a minister like he is like a, a revival preacher and uh, they just buy a hook, line, and sinker, but they also want to be lied to or told that there's something wrong with their city. Well, I guess, you know, Well You Got Trouble is all about getting over, which, I mean, is a term that comes to wrestling from con artist, con artistry, if that's a term. Uh, but, like, it, it's just the perfect example of it. You said, like, telling the people what they want to hear. Uh, as someone who's in marketing myself, I, like, hear him as kind of a marketer and a salesman there. Uh, like really targeting the audience because at the beginning of the show there's this song called Iowa Stubborn where the the town people are talking about how they're um, very discerning and very sort of old-fashioned wise etc etc so like you said he kind of knows how these people want to be spoken to and he really targets his audience and tells them you know he's constantly flattering them you know I know all you folks are the right kind of parents I want to be perfectly frank Etc. Uh, Etc. Et and at that point, he's like literally—he gets them all, the entire town square, 
to like drop down to his level in a literal sense. He like crouches and they all crouch with him and they're just hanging on all, every single word. It is Robert Preston in this movie is unbelievable. Like he is, he, and this is something we want to talk about later, but he is the reason this character is like redeemable and someone you actually end up rooting for in a very real way. Yeah. I definitely think like the book of this play, like the libretto, as you, as you would say, like the, the, the character is kind of a creep and is really up to no good in like pretty serious ways. But like you said, the performance really redeems him. And uh, he, he is kind of the baby face, you know, all throughout. And you, you somehow don't feel bad rooting for him because the performance is just so charismatic. He's over on every level. Like, Harold Hill gets over with the people in the town and Robert Preston gets Harold Hill over, you know, with you, the viewer. It's, it's perfect. It really is a great yeah. performance. And it's important to recognize that like, there's also this weird thing with this town and I don't know how intentional it is. And, and I think it's an interesting that ha- thing that happens only in musicals is this, there's this weird like musicality to everyone's performance. Like there's a, a famous song, which I'm about to play a clip of, um, called The Piano Lesson slash uh, If You Don't Mind Me Saying So. And it's a Shirley Jones and uh, hold on one second. And an offensive Irish stereotype. I think she's an offensive Irish stereotype as a person. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh God, what is her name? It's something like uh, Pert Kelton. Uh, Pert Kelton and Shirley Jones do a song called um, Piano Lesson slash uh, If You Don't Mind Me Saying So, in which they do sc- they sing to scales through most of the song. Now don't dawdle, Amaryllis. So do, la, re, ti, me a little slower and please keep the fingers curved as nice and high as you possibly can. Don't get faster, dear. If you don't mind my saying so, it wouldn't have hurt you to have found out what the gentleman wanted. I know what the gentleman wanted. What, dear? You'll find it in Balzac. Excuse me for living, but I never read it. Neither has anyone else in this town. There you go again with the same old comment about the low mentality of River City people and taking it all too much to heart. Now, Mama, as long as the Madison Public Library was entrusted to me for the purpose of improving River City's cultural level, I can't help my concern that the ladies of River City keep ignoring all my counsel and advice. And that's something they do throughout the movie. Uh, the the mu- movie and the musical, but more so the movie, because uh, if you listen at the end of uh, the, uh, sorry, you got trouble, you can actually hear them f- pretending to be talking almost about the thing that they just heard Harold Hill say. Like they are singing the song still, but especially the way it's shot, it is shot as though these people are now talking about this thing in this way amongst themselves. Yeah, like he they- has injected it into the community. Yes, exactly. He is injected through just his natural aura, but also it is implied, like it's not implied. Uh, Marion is also a um, a music teacher. Like she's a, a, and Shirley Jones is, does a great job of this movie. Um, she's a, basically as good as Preston because she gets you to believe that she actually like falls in love with Harold Hill because spoiler alert, at the end you find out that she, since she knew for so long, she like actively made a choice that she just liked this guy and thought he wasn't a bad guy, even though she knew what she was, he was doing because like I said before, he was actually still giving them things. He wasn't like, 
giving them faulty equipment or bad uniforms just wasn't teaching them. And I think that was part of it. It is implied that it is kind of his dream to be more of a like worldly person, I guess it would be, or not even worldly person, but like he wants to be a legit guy. It almost feels like. And I think that's also part of it is you want him to go to go legit in some way. And, uh, Marion slash Shirley Jones represents that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, she's a really interesting character. And like you said, her treatment of her, that she identifies him as a fraud, you know, before everybody else and kind of lets it slide, you know, when she really could be warning other people. But I think it gets down to something that we do hear in the Scales song, which is the idea that uh, she is the smartest person in town. Like, I don't think the, the show makes any bones about that. And that she kind of identifies him or they see each other as smart people and like as maybe the only two characters in the whole play who are smart. And like in this song, that side of Marion kind of comes through how you can see that like where her smarts kind of puts her on a different level from anybody else. And there almost is like maybe she could be a little arrogant about it, like when the. The mother is saying, you know, even though you, you quote Balzac and Shakespeare and all those either high flute and Greeks, like neither of whom are Greek, uh, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, but, uh, but this idea that like Marion maybe somewhere deep inside of her, like there is a little bit of like resent that like I uh, resent, resent. <laughs> Why did I pronounce that that way? Uh, there is a little bit of like resentfulness on her side that uh, that like the people in the town, you know, maybe don't appreciate the more intellectual side of things. And, you know, she identifies that in Harold Hill, that he is a smart guy. And as you said, maybe a smart guy who's not good yet, but is a smart guy who is a could maybe get there kind of thing. And she prefers a guy who's not good yet to a guy who is, you know, dumb and doesn't care to be any smarter. And yeah, and there's another, uh, and we talked a little bit about the problematic nature of some of the stuff. There's also a kind of problematic song, though I actually think it's a weird one. It's um, Sadder But Wiser Girl. Because it's literally him talking about how he doesn't want to date like a school, like an innocent school teacher. He wants to date somebody like Marion because he doesn't want to have to pretend to be like he doesn't. He wants someone who has been disappointed before, basically, uh, which is why it's literally called Sadder But Wiser Girl. Like he wants someone that he doesn't have to worry about, like committing to unless he wants to, because his biggest thing is a need to be like in control of his vulnerability and his connection to other people. And I think that comes across, she pulls that out of him. I flinch, I shy, when the lass with the delicate air goes by, I smile, I grin, when the gal with the touch of sin walks in, I hope and I pray for Hester to win just one more A. The sadder but wiser girl's the girl for me. The sadder but wiser girl for me. In like Sadder But Wiser Girl, I think it's also a case where it, it's kind of a moment where uh, when he sings that song, even though, like you said, the lyrics are problematic, it's a moment where he actually is kind of opening himself up, where he's saying, like, I can't be with a normal woman because a normal woman would never understand me and I would never draw any satisfaction from a relationship with a normal woman because I am an outsider. So I need to be with someone else who is an outsider. And like the lyrics are problematic, but he's actually saying something really hard. Yeah, and, and I think that is kind of what the thing is about is this idea that like, if you can give us a good lie, we will basically forgive a lot of things. And if you are a person who is not a bad person, but who does bad things, we can also kind of 
look past that, which is, I, I think, why um, this works as an allegory for wrestling, but in particular, why Harold Hill works as an allegory for, like, uh, what you called, because we discussed this beforehand, a character babyface, as opposed to a cool heel. And I thought that was a really interesting distinction between the two. And it, it and we'll tie it back into how he took over the town, basically, because he's he is the Pied Piper in a literal sense. Like, in the Iowa Stubborn song, he literally has the town following him around, but I, and and in the opening song in the overture uh, when they're talking about Harold Hill, they they say uh, when the man dances, certainly boys. What else? The piper pays him. That there's this like that there's this in double image of him both as the pied piper who leads the people, but as someone who who makes the mark think that they're in charge. The piper pays him. That he's good at making people follow him and he's good at convincing people that it's their idea. <laughs> yes. And um, yeah, he, he, that is a really strong baby face characteristic. Like he is an incredible baby. Fa- he reminds me a lot in a weird way of John Cena in the sense that it is this character that is this old fashioned character, but there's a, like a sliver of real. And I think it's more of a sliver with John Cena of real earnestness running through it. That makes the entire thing work. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. I, yeah, that, that, that there's a desire within him to like do good and to put smiles on people's faces. Like maybe like, as a con man that he's putting smiles on people's faces in a temporary way and then running out the back door most of the time. But you can see the drive in him throughout the story to, to stop running out the back door that he wants to put smile on people's faces and leave. Cause the way his con works is that he sells them all the instruments and all the uniforms. And then he leaves town before teaching them how to play music because he doesn't actually know how to read music, but he, you can tell that like, even though he doesn't know music, that he has this urge in him, this drive in him to to stop being the guy who runs away and kind of start sticking around and continuing to put smiles on faces, to use stone terminology. And there's this... Uh, yeah, and, and I think the other interesting thing is the way he interacts with the... Not the children, as I said. Yeah, I guess the children, because it's children to teenagers in the town. There is a genuine affinity he has for younger people that kind of peeks past his natural like um like not motivation but his natural move to like con someone he like understands that children are easy marks so he almost takes it easy on them if that makes like he is giving them only the genuine part of it and then giving their parents the like runaround no he he respects and admires like the innocence of young children because he has none of that. Yes. It's something that he's kind of empty when it comes to. And so that, that you know, that, that seeing children be happy is something that, that makes him happy. <laughs> yeah. And he actually does an incredible job at the end with uh, Winthrop, who is uh, Ronnie Howard. <laughs> it's Ron Howard. Right. Uh, but where he basically tells him, like, no, I did lie, and I'm sorry. Like, I was wrong, and I hurt you, and I'm sorry. And it's this really heartfelt moment, because not only does he care about uh, Marion, he cares about the community. Like, they end up turning him into someone who, like you said, he's trying to be the guy that doesn't run away. Like, he likes it there on some level. When he first get there, he likes it. He thinks it's like a nice little town. And I think that's important is that there's this earnest feeling he has towards the people in the town which is it translates through his con 
to them that they understand that he is actually like there for them in a weird way whether or not he's doing it to like get over is unclear like you don't know how badly like he wants to leave but he also doesn't like he stays he misses he tries to he almost misses trains and stuff like that in part for marion but also for the town like there is a real uh, sense of place in river city that i think works translates throughout the entire thing that uh kind of creates the same feeling you get when you're in an arena and everybody wants you to do the thing like a, a like a baby face would like there's this sense that the crowd wants him to keep going the way he's going yeah a hundred percent so so two things here one kind of writerly thing and one kind of wrestling thing on the writerly side ooh, hold on one second so two things here one kind of writerly thing and one kind of wrestling thing um, on the writerly side, I love how – so the Buddy Hackett character who's supposed to be his like Barker, his hype man, like he has retired to River City, which is, is like presented as this huge theatrical coincidence at the beginning of the play, like something that's kind of a stretch. But the, it's a great – like from a literary perspective, it's really a great seed, this idea that his former accomplice has already retired to this town and settled down and married a woman here. They like plant that seed that like there's something of Harold Hill here already and something that's very close to his old life has translated here and stuff. So I always think that that's a really nice touch. It's just something they throw away at the beginning of the play as like kind of ridiculous coincidence. Like, oh, you're here. Okay. But, but, uh, but I, I, and he's very clear about how much Buddy Hackett's character is very clear about how much he likes River City. Yeah. It's it's a really nice place. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And he's a little at the beginning, you know, he instantly, uh, the, the Harold Hill character instantly starts asking him like, what's the angle here? What's the problem? What do these people need? Tell me like, he's instantly starting to work angles and the Buddy Hackett, the the performance, again, the performance is really good for Buddy Hackett with him just kind of doing that, which I know is his trademark side effect or sound effect rather. But, uh, but he really gets, like you said, that sense of hesitancy. Like he's like, "Oh, come on, can we not screw these people over? Like maybe too bad. Like this is a decent place." Yes, exactly. It's the don't screw them over too bad. That like he wants to still be able to live there. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. He's like, "I got a family here. Come on." Yeah, and but, I think. Sorry, you were gonna say. Oh no no no! And then I was gonna say uh, my second point was uh, like wrestling wise. You were saying it's it's about like setting the people up for the baby face to do things that they you know want to see. And, and I guess like, yeah, exactly. I think John Cena is a really interesting analog because uh, I don't want to dive too much into like John Cena's personal life, obviously, because it's none of my damn business. But um, it literally is like a story in both the gossip sites that I read that are wrestling related and the gossip sites that my wife reads that are just celebrity related. There's like this narrative out there that's like, can John Cena be a traditional family man? Like, does he, does he uh, want to settle down and have kids and like it, it's such a crazy analog for this movie. Like I was saying before, like him doing the thing where he's worried, like I don't want to settle down in the traditional way. Can I be a normal, honest person? And it's like there's this question about John Cena right now, where it's like, well, he doesn't want to settle down and be a family man. Can he still be like a traditional hunky A-list, you know, wholesome male celebrity? So just a really, really weird and perfect, I guess, apt moment that we're recording this conversation because. I don't know. I don't know that I would have identified the similarities between, you know, Robert Preston and John Cena last week. Mm-hmm. No, and I, that's actually what made me think of it, too, is that there's this idea that John Cena is both a very, very, very good person, like an exceptional man in terms of like, honestly, the way he interacts with children in particular. Like there's a lot of like exactly. he, that's what he, I thought of it when you were saying that. 
Yeah, and he doesn't want kids at the same time. He loves the idea, not of like these are, but like that he can be an inspiration to all, giving him the benefit of the doubt as much as I can. He knows he is too selfish of a person. He said this publicly, so I don't feel like it's, I'm speaking out of school. He said this publicly during interviews. He is a very selfish, self-driven person. And he doesn't know if he can commit to having a kid, but he also gets to give joy to children through the Make-A-Wish Foundation, which he is literally like the most popular popular most prolific wish giver of all time by like a lot by like hundreds of wishes given like he is like genuinely like a, a, an extremely charitable person in that sense but he's also like i don't want kids and it's this interesting like how do we square that with this also incredibly like i don't want to say wholesome character because john cena does some shitty stuff but this like somewhat forthright character that's like in the the almost the inversion of Harold Hill in the sense that we don't want to believe he is genuinely a person that believes in like hustle loyalty and respect but like outside of the loyalty the hustle and the respect seem to like actually be a thing he believes in yeah definitely like I think yeah exactly you know there's there's no one way to look at John Cena I think that's kind of true of like anybody who's at the top of any industry they're always figures that you can you know look at from tons of different angles and read you know tons of different ways yeah um And I think what's also interesting, and this is something I wanted to get back to, is this idea that there's this, like, and this happens in a lot of musicals, but I think the music man does the best job with it, which is the musicality of the universe it's created, right? Like, wrestling has a very very similar construct, and it's something I've always found really interesting, which is that, like, the whole idea is that everyone involved on some level, there's very few musicals where people are singing against their will, not singing in situations where they're being held against their will, but actively like Phantom of the Opera. There's the song that uh, what's her face, what's her face, the the female lead of the story sings at the end, uh, right before the end where she's doing the play with the Phantom. And that is like an example of someone actually being forced to sing against their will. But for the most part, people just like get the like, the the music flowing through them, right? Like I think that's like a good way to explain the way that musicals work. Oh yeah, definitely. Well, it's interesting in this. It's like in uh, in this play in particular. It's like there's the barbershop quartet, and like there's kind of the thing that part of him getting over early in the play is kind of given them the groove. Like these are supposed to be like a, a major upstanding citizens of the town who maybe would stand in the way of someone like him coming through and taking over the place. But he like touches them with his magic, and they start singing as a barbershop quartet. So it's literally like you know he like waves his fingers, and they they catch the groove. Yeah, and I think that's kind of what wrestlers are supposed to do they're supposed to make you catch the quote not the groove but make you lose yourself in that moment and i think like yeah and definitely that's a great way of putting it. yeah and i think what's most interesting is like the way that they construct this musical universe as like both pre-existing and manufactured by harold hill it's very similar to when like a a a wrestling company comes to a town and there was excitement before for like the idea of bands and John Philip Sousa came to the town on the very same day, all that stuff. But like, and it's the same thing with wrestling. Like I, I, I played the clip earlier of them saying that, uh, gotch, I haven't seen people in Iowa this excited since, uh, gotch and strangler <laughs> lie down. For- <laughs> and it's just like stuff like that. They're a group of people that want, to be conned and I, I i what i want to talk about is like what 
does that mean because we talked last week about the concept of disappointment what does that mean on the other side if people want to be lied to what can you get away with and what do you have to do to redeem it at the end does that make sense yeah well i think i guess it's kind of outlined like in iowa stubborn what we talked about at the beginning and this is something that you know those uh, those top tier uh, dirt cheat guys that we talked about in our previous episode. This is this is a bell that they always ring, but it's like the lie has to have a certain kind of structured set of rules to it, and that's like kind of what they lay out in Iowa Stubborn. Like they say, like you know, we're not just going to listen to you and be nice to you for no reason, but at the same time, like if you're ever actually in need, we'll give you the clothes off our back. Like they kind of lay out their values at the beginning and they tell him exactly what kind of lie to build for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like don't make us hate you. Make us like okay with the fact that you're lying to us. Give us something to believe in in this exactly. lie. And what, exactly. And what I, I love and one of my favorite, because ask Dave how much I love the Music Man. The Music Man is like my favorite. The scene at the end with the kids band playing Beethoven incredibly terribly like <laughs> is and every single person in the room getting excited for his or her child in the band is like a really beautiful moment that shows that like people just want to connect with the thing that they're watching or being in or or seeing or like engaging with and what Harold Hill teaches you is that like what you give people, the ends can in this sense justify the means in a way that I don't think if you were being entirely truthful with someone, like if you try to be like, oh, this thing is going to change your life, blah, 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 blah. And they know that they think you're serious. And then it turns out it doesn't change your life they're going to be a lot more pissed than if you like, they knew you were kind of full of shit and you got some enjoyment out of it. And I, well, I think, and I were, Iowa stubborn is actually, uh, you bring up Iowa stubborn. Iowa stubborn is my favorite song from it. Cause like you said, it lays the blueprint for the entire movie without being in your face about it. Like you understand immediately what his opponent is, which is like the disillusionment of this, not even disillusionment. Cause it implies they were illusioned at some time, but like, the stubbornness for lack of a better term of the people in the town but the like and you said um what, what the exact line is Which I just love that as a crescendo for like a musical number. <laughs> it's like yeah, because it's it's like it's almost sarcastic. You know what I mean? It's like perfect. It's like like I said, they're they're very into like considering themselves discerning. Like they they take pride in being a tough crowd, which makes it even more fun that you know he just comes in and like plays them like a fiddle. Yeah, and I but I think that that's the point is they want to have. Like just and I know I said this before, like a real thing to believe in, but like something tangible they can work 
in relation to because when they're saying like if your crops literally die we will work with you to make your like make you whole again but outside mm. of that you can kind of go fuck yourself like right yeah it's like the, we'll give you we'll give you our shirt and the back to go with it it's like yeah 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 we'll help you out but like god don't expect me to like talk to you or whatever like, yeah i'll help you out but then get the fuck out of here jesus <laughs> and i do love that it establishes um in the way that like andre the giant ripping off hogan's necklace and teaming with bobby heenan does it establishes very strongly what the actual because there's a guy who comes through and kind of exposes harold hill but he's not the villain he's the like catalyst for the the climax you know what i'm saying like he he's not a bad guy like he's he's a he's a bad guy he's not a villain no absolutely he's the you know he's the dark secret from the baby faces past you know he's a he's AJ Styles, a secret mistress. What was that character's name? Claire Lynch. <laughs> you know, he's the problem. He's the problem at the beginning of act three more so than he's a villain. Yeah. And, and I think that you understand that the ultimate thing is that like, he ends up making the Iowa, Iowan stubborn, sorry, Iowan, Iowan stubbornness, Iowegian. That's what I'm going to say. The Iowegian stubbornness actually like win in the end, that it is the Iowan stubbornness. It is the type of people that those people in river city are that won over him. He didn't really have a chance. You like realize through the movie, like from the second he lands in river city, he really doesn't have a chance of ever getting out of river city he literally says i come through here but once like you got no chance <laughs> if you say that shit too. <laughs> <laughs> that's too pathetic yeah and no definitely it's like by the end of it too it's like when there finally is the confrontation about him being a fraud it's you know once the people like you said once the people see the kids play it's like no 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 this is the tr- we have accepted the truth of harold hill and we're not going to ask any questions uh, about his background beyond this because like it's not necessary because he has satisfied our discerning tastes and and given us something that works for us you know that makes us happy that that gives us optimism for the future and makes us happy in the present yeah and he doesn't have to over promise and under he can just say i got you the things that i got you and then you got them and now we're all happy because i'm happy i'm here and my presumed like future wife or whatever will be able to teach the students how to play the instruments. Like that's the other funny thing. And then I keep going back to that is they're giving them something. They are get like the Wells Fargo wagon. Like they don't have a lot to live. Not. Uh, yeah. I guess not a lot to live for in river city, Iowa. Like it, or at least not to look forward yeah, so to. Not, at least not <laughs> to look forward to, except for Wells Fargo. The Wells Fargo wagon is but no, that song's also really important and an incredibly famous song from that, which is that like we just want thing we want the same things that other people want, but we have to pretend to be obstinate about us about it because that is part of our identity as people. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's also interesting as well because like uh I was talking earlier, kind of when we were talking about Sandra but Wiser Girl, that how he's saying, like, I am an outsider. And he's saying, you know, I need to be with a woman who is an outsider. And he represents Marion as an outsider because she doesn't fit in with the town. But, like, through his con, he brings them all together. Like, he brings not only himself, but also Marion, who is an outsider, and the townspeople who, you know, in the, are, are proud of themselves for not letting others in. And he brings all of them together and makes a new community that's 
like markedly better than the one that he walked into. Yeah, uh, much more like the kids that were causing trouble at the beginning of the thing are now like important members of the band and clearly like very gifted and stuff like and that. Sort of the pride for the town. Like they went from being, you know, the, the boys that they were worried about to now they're like one of the, the great sources of pride. And excellent, excellent, like comically good dancers. Like, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, one of the things I love about it is like, since the kids are all supposed to be musical on some level, they could all like dance and sing way better than the adults can. <laughs> Which I think is part of the charm of the movie is that there are a lot of people, and quite frankly, in the movie that cannot sing. Like they're actively... Oh, well, even, even Buddy Hackett, like when he does Shapoopy, yeah. like calling that singing is like a bit of a stretch. But I think it works to create this, like, and it's similar to wrestling and the idea of this, like, kayfabed world where stuff that wouldn't actually ever hurt totally hurts. And, like, who's this guy that's pretending to be a good guy? Like, it allows them to be part of the community. Like, being able to sing, having the groove within you, as you said, is what unifies them as a community because he gave them the freedom to, like, want to do like he gave them the thing he gives them is the freedom to just kind of enjoy themselves i guess <laughs> so tying back to what we said earlier about like uh john cena and him kind of finding joy in other people's kids uh it's really kind of interesting because like that i think is kind of embodied by the kids being musical like he doesn't have this connection to the adults and Marion maybe doesn't have this connection to the adults necessarily. But like I was saying at the beginning, something about the innocence and the purity of children, like the children live in this musical world that Marion and Harold Hill and the townsfolk who he has touched and given the groove, so to speak, like that, that's kind of like a special world that he creates. And like, in like we were talking about earlier with kind of like John Cena and the Make-A-Wish stuff, once again, it kind of like, the idea of someone who's maybe an outsider and doesn't fit into the traditional family model that's like such a part of American storytelling, but, you know, still being able to kind of form a special, a special family-like community, you know what I mean, through mm -hmm. their gift and through their ability to touch other people. And what I think is interesting is the part that she really starts liking him is during the Marion Librarian song, but specifically when he uses the word carrion, because it signifies to her that he is intelligent in a way that no one else in the town is. Like he rhymes her name with the word, like a fancy word, like a $5 word. And it's really the moment, like physically in the film, you see her like come towards him in some way that she realizes he's not just an idiot. Or like, a, he's not just a, like a huckster. He's actually an intelligent man who is genuinely reaching out to her and not necessarily in a way that's like, he's not, he pretty early on isn't trying to get over on her. And I think that's the other thing is he like, he's both trying to and knows on some level he can't. Well, I think that's kind of like when... Uh... She, so there's the, the Chaucer, Rabelais, Balzac. Of course, I shouldn't tell you this, but she advocates dirty books. Dirty books. Chaucer, Rabelais, Balzac. And the worst thing, of course, I shouldn't tell you this. I'll tell. The man lived on my street. Let me tell. No, I'll tell. She made brazen overtures to a man who never had a friend in this town till she came here. Oh, yes, that woman made... There's the, the books that she enjoys that the, that the other people in town object to and, like, the pick a little, talk a little song. And, like, there's the scene later on where 
uh, she bumps into those women again, and they say that they have read the books based on Professor Hill, Harold Hill's recommendation, which obviously is something that he has done to, you know, kind of flirt with her and kind of be transactional with her on one hand, like cynically, you know, but on the other hand, it, it kind of definitely represents his like, well, I'm not going to try anything with you because, you know, you're not someone, you've got it hard enough. You don't deserve to have anybody con you. So I'm going to kind of use my powers to be nice to you because you deserve people to understand. Yeah. And I, I think she also does a good job of, because part of the thing is they think she like slept with the guy who the most uh, powerful man in town. Uh, he leaves her, he lives the library to river city and the books to her. And um, they're, they have a real problem. They brazen overtures. And they it's the phrase they use. Brazen overtures. Um, and it's very like you understand in that moment that she is like, it, that is the moment where the 1960 or the, the late 1950s sexual politics are like actively telling the 1912 sexual politics to go fuck themselves. <laughs> like, it's interesting, too, because they say uh, she made brazen overtures to a man who had but not one friend in this town. Like, they literally say she dared to allegedly love a man or have an affair with a man who was not popular, you know, <laughs> who was an outsider. Like, it's very, like, it's very puritanical. Yes. It's very, like, insider, outsider, us to them stuff. Like, so it's not even, you know, she's a slut. It's that she had a relationship with a man that none of us liked. Yeah, and the thing is that you find out, like, even if it, she's like, and I, I remember if I remember correctly, because I, I, you know, I forget things. She basically says when Harold Hill confronts her about it, like, no, that was my, even if it wasn't this case, like it was my father's best friend. He took care of me and my brother, my brother and my mother by giving us all the stuff and the job, at the library. But like, even if it wasn't the case, like what, like she is very like comfortable with herself in a way that you don't get to see and i think it's again in part because it's a, a a story written in the late 50s for that takes place 40 50 years earlier and they are allowed to play with the like they can make her the kind of quasi feminist or at least the independent woman of the screwball comedies without while having that be part of the way her character interacts with society, which I think is a really interesting way to do it. Yeah, and I think, like, let's compare this to another movie I know you're super fond of, which is Meet Me in St. Louis, or Meet Me in St. Louis. Like, <laughs> that movie, look back at the Columbian exhibition at this same time period, at the early 1900s, like, very nostalgically. And, like, Music Man does not do that. Like you said, there is a clear tone. It's clear throughout the play that, like... These people's close-mindedness is quaint, but it's also, like, not cool. Like I said, like, the way that they gossip about her behind her back and stuff, it, you know, it, it's clear that, uh, that that they're not kind of endorsing this. Whereas, like, a musical like Meet Me in St. Louis with Judy Garland that came out, I guess, a couple of years before this, right? Maybe 10 years before this movie. That would have been, like, late 40s. I'm not sure when Meet Me in St. Louis came out. Uh, but like that was a movie that like looked back like at this point in time in the Midwest like and gave it like two thumbs up. <laughs> so so it was nice to see like in contrast this movie, which you know is kind of starting to rethink things as you know through the lens of the kind of late fifties, early sixties. And I think what's also interesting with the Music Man relative to like like you said, Meet Me in St. Louis, which that was a fun, very funny joke by Dave. Uh, I almost got killed. 1944, 1944. So it would have been, what, like 15 years ago? Yeah, okay. yeah but uh, I think the, I keep saying the, 
Yeah, it's the 1957 musical. So you're talking about 10, 15 years uh, post, uh, whatchamacallit, post Meet Me in St. Louis. That's when the music. Post that watershed moment in cinema. Yes. God, I, I hate Meet Me in St. And I think that's a really important um, thing is that, like, what's also important and, and, and to me is a big parallel with wrestling is that just because someone is a hero in town does not make them a good person. Like, in other words, like if you, and I don't think they do this in this case, but if Harold Hill would have subjugated himself to the prejudice of the town in terms of it, and specifically how it relates to Marion, he would have been a baby face to them, but he would not have been a good sustaining baby face. The character wouldn't have worked nearly as well because you have to... He has to be in a, able to appeal, and that's why it's so hard to be a babyface. You have to appeal to everyone, or it doesn't totally work. Because what you're selling is something that is aspirational almost inherently. And if you give anyone the opportunity to aim lower than that aspiration, the character doesn't. So, work. so uh, like if you think about a movie like Meet Me in St. Louis. You know, uh, the earlier movie we're talking about from, I guess it was 44. It's like the boyfriends, the hunky guys in that movie are kind of just stereotypical early Hollywood years hunks. Like they've got, you know, the, the pomaded hair and they've got like the square shoulders and stuff. So Harold Hill, you know, in the later movie that's reflecting on the same time period, he's more the hero we deserve or the hero we need. Whereas the boyfriends in Meet Me in St. Louis are the hero we want. And I think that that kind of gets at the pro wrestling idea of something you alluded to earlier, which is like being a character baby face rather than like the traditional baby face. Cause like, as we all know, like the traditional baby face model, at least in the main event at the top tier is like really, really broken. Or one could even say maybe dead or dying. You know, this idea that, you know, someone is, is handsome and is virtuous and seems aspirational to young men and seems available to young women uh, you know, and is is exciting and, you know, talks like you and me, but like a charismatic version of you and me. Like that stereotypical kind mm-hmm. of baby face is kind of like the boyfriends in Meet Me in St. Louis. Whereas, you know, yes. Harold Hill is more of a character baby face, which is to say someone who isn't necessarily that perfect squeaky clean good guy, um, but someone who is an intriguing character who people are intrigued by, who people are interested by because they're different or because they stand out. And so we've kind of got, you know, one reflection on the turn of the century in maybe in St. Louis, where they kind of, you know, want it very traditional, black and white, you know, let's tell a really nice uplifting story about a positive family. Um, and, but then, you know, contrast that with uh, Music Man, you're being presented with more of a character baby face with someone who's flawed. Like we were saying at the beginning, he's kind of a creep. <laughs> he's undeniably a professional con man. Uh, but you find yourself rooting for him. And proudly so. He's the best, right? He's he's bragging about himself on the train when people don't know who he is. <laughs> like, but, but and that he he but he for them is able to you know bring a more satisfying conclusion. He's able to give them what like I said. He's not maybe the hero that they would draw up in the picture book, but he turns out to really be the hero that they need. The key to that, and this is something we briefly mentioned earlier, is the quality of the performance is so important. Like this story does not work if you don't nail harold hill to the fucking wall you have to get harold hill's casting right or you cannot have the music man 
Like you need someone who can play earnestly a con man, which is really fucking hard. If John Cena could sing, I'd honestly think he'd make a good Harold Hill. I do not think he can sing, nor do I think he's a particularly good dancer, though I think he could learn how to dance. But I, you need someone, and, and Robert Preston is very famously like Frank Sinatra was supposed to be Harold Hill. Uh, Cary Grant was supposed to be Harold Hill. And for the first one, for Frank Sinatra, um, Meredith Wilson, the guy who wrote the, the story of the Music Man and, and, the, play, and the, um, the musical, he went in and he was like, no, you have to have Robert Preston. And then they were like, okay, fine. And then they asked Cary Grant and Cary Grant's like, no, that's, that's Bob's role. Like, <laughs> I'm not touching that. Like, it, it, he has, he played it because he had played it so many times. He was doing that double wrestling thing of selling you on the fact that he was selling you. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, definitely. I think it's funny because so in preparing for this, I, I've, I've watched the Robert Preston movie like, yeah, like at least a dozen times, probably four or five of them with you. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> in, in preparing for this, I also uh, watched uh, the, the, the 2000s version with uh, Matthew Broderick in the – Who's uh, an incredibly talented Broadway performer. I love his performance. I love him in like the producers kind of like playing kind of the meek straight man. But like he just is is just like three levels – like too low in terms of, you know, bombasticism and charisma in this movie. Like he plays this almost just like, like it, the character that he plays wouldn't be as good as Harold Hill is supposed to be. Like, if that makes sense, like, oh, no, totally. Like he's, he's too emotion. He, he's kind of shows his hand by being emotionally available too early on. You know what I mean? So the whole, cause like, if you, if you don't know the plot and you start watching the play, you really don't know that there's going to be, the love story until maybe 15 minutes in. Like when you yeah. first start watching the play for the first 15 minutes, it feels like it's going to be a story about this like rogue. You know what I mean? That it's going to be yeah. this sort of story about this adventurous, adventurous rogue. But once you hear, once you realize the woman has his number, then you're like, oh, okay, it's going to be a love story about him winning her over. But I thought that uh, Matthew Broderick, you know, from kind of minute one, I was like, man, I can tell that he is going to be playing a romantic lead <laughs> in this play, which I didn't dig. He was just a little, yeah. I didn't, a little too meek. He could not touch Robert Preston. Oh, well, I mean, yeah. And if Cary Grant doesn't think he can do a better performance than you, like, probably not going to be able to do a better performance than you. But it is because he was the music man. He was Harold Hill. He completely embodied that character after so many performances. I think you're talking like, 800 performances or something like it's a crazy amount of times he played uh harold hill and i think that's the thing with that makes john cena work is that john cena is playing john cena he's playing a version of john cena that has turned up to 15 but he is playing a version of himself there is an earnestness in his like the way he lives his life and especially 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 the way that he believes in giving back to the fans, that is the most important thing that either that any true baby face has. And I think, and I think it's interesting that you, you, you juxtaposed uh, meet me in St. Louis and this, because the meet me in St. Louis also feels like in, in the way that it's completely unnuanced in its interpretation of like early 1900s Midwestern America it's almost like Hulk Hogan where he's they're like doing bad things and are bad people, but we're supposed to act like they're not flawed in any way. And 
that's not the case for John Cena. John Cena's entire thing, even though he is fundamentally like a, a white meat baby face in terms of like his beliefs, is treated as a controversial figure. Uh, like out whether or not that is warranted isn't discussed. It is understood that he is like a polarizing figure. And they talk about that in a way that like people acknowledge that like Harold Hill, you can't quite trust him, but they still like, like him and want to be in his orbit. Yeah. 100%. I definitely, I definitely agree with that. It, it's funny too. Like I, I'm just seeing all these John Cena connections now that we're, we're talking about him too. It's like, even at the beginning of the thing, it's like when the other salesmen are talking, it's like, what's the problem with like, uh, with Harold Hill. It's like, well, he's a, he doesn't know the territory. Like it's the idea, like the same, the whole mythos about John Cena, like not being a great wrestler and stuff, you know what I mm-hmm. mean? And that, that's kind of the whole, it kind of connects to him not knowing the territory. But at the end, like you said, it's kind of, it's the earnestness that carries him through. It's his, it's his desire to do well and his desire to pull things off. You know what I mean? That, that, that kind of is what makes him who he is and what's made him so incredibly stinking successful. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was uh, awesome. I am so happy we got to do that episode. So yeah, did you have any uh, thinky wrestling podcasty kind of thingies this week? Yeah, I have two thingies of that nature this week, actually. The first one, of course, comes to us from Jim Cornette, uh, who always has some intriguing things to say. Um, this clip comes to us from episode 48 of Jim Cornette's drive through So that would have dropped on uh, April the 9th. And this clip starts at the one hour, three minute and 40 second mark. So one Oh three forty, And it goes through till about one twelve. It's about nine minutes. Um, but he's literally talking about wrestling rings, like different kinds of wrestling rings and how the rings in various territories were different from each other and how you put a ring together and how the different materials the ring is made out of will affect the sound and the look for television. And I mean, it's like someone asked uh, Frank Lloyd Wright to talk about beams or something like that. Like, Hearing someone who has such a great love for wrestling and has been a promoter and just knows the nitty gritty of the equipment so well talk about, you know, like I said, it's like it's like asking Frank Lloyd Wright to talk to you about ceiling beams. It's super duper interesting. So check out uh, Jim Cornette talking about rings on the uh, on the uh, April 9th episode of Cornette's drive through. That's a really awesome one. Yeah, that sounds absolutely. Yeah, like I, I like the really technical aspects of like stage management kind of stuff and that sounds right up my alley okay so this recommendation this second recommendation uh it's for an entire episode of a podcast that i found really really interesting it is the april 16th of this past monday edition of what happened when tony shivani's podcast and uh, tony shivani watched ecw for the first time ever and reacted to it live he watched the original barely legal pay-per-view with the stevie uh versus terry funk versus who was the third Sandman was the third person in that match with the winner taking on Raven. He watches that whole show and uh, it really blew his mind. He was really into it. And it was intriguing to hear someone who's kind of an old school wrestling fan. And he basically said he was like, you know, what they were doing in ECW in 97 had a way bigger influence on today's product than, than what we were doing in WCW in, in 97. So it was really intriguing to hear him see ECW for the first time and like immediately contextualize it within 
within the history of where wrestling was during the Monday Night War and where it wound up. So that whole most recent episode of What Happened When, where Tony Schiavone watches ECW for the first time, I couldn't recommend it more. It's a blast. Um, no, I think that's uh, we're probably going to go uh, get into the way that wrestling has changed in terms of the way it is shot um next episode because we are going to be doing um nature documentaries we're going to so your planet earth your blue planets really the more specifically the david attenborough um kind of uh nature documentaries but i i think we're going to end up talking about paul Heyman because there's this really clear shift away from the wcw style of presentation both in terms of athleticism and in terms of the way that it's shot um that like which is interesting because eric bischoff for all his flaws is actually a pretty interesting television producer and i i think that the idea that they full sale like completely rejected basically everything eric bischoff did and ended up taking a lot of what ecw did onto their own production uh, is like really it, it's a it's a major choice that we don't think about when we think about wrestling i like how you turned my thinky wrestling podcast roundup into a plug for next week you're a very smooth operator sir <laughs> thank you <laughs> uh, harold hill a professor harold hill uh, of your own I, I i do know the territory um so yeah that was our week uh, our weeks that was this week's episode i'm very happy i hope you guys liked it um we will see you when we see you do you have anything else you would like to add or plug david oh uh, wait let oh. me actually before we do that i have restarted juice make sugar so every tuesday morning i am releasing releasing i am publishing a uh review of raw called raw regurgitated that is juicemakesugar.com um it is not formatted that much uh so you can just follow us on facebook it's just juice make sugar look that up um but yeah uh, i have uh, i've started writing again in addition to producing this podcast so i, I did want to mention that before i forgot yeah hell yeah i, I endorse juice make sugar 100 fully nick's uh raw reviews are always really really funny and i mean he he talks about basically everything on the show it, it's super duper comprehensive it's not just someone you know uh, giving their hot takes on the on the key segments of the night. It's really someone kind of thinking of the show as a whole and thinking of each pieces of, of it on its own as well. So I can't endorse Nick more fully as your raw reviewer. Um, I'll also just briefly plug uh, the wrestling estate for which I write. Um, I, I should do this like every week, but I often forget to. I always take for granted that anybody who's listening, you know, is already doing these things. But uh, Wrestling Estate has has grown a great deal, you know, kind of throughout the WrestleMania season. Um, we we are in the inner uh, inner media circle for Impact Wrestling, so we've got a lot of really great uh, Impact Wrestling footage and uh, Impact Wrestling coverage that I'm not a part of, uh, but the people who do it uh, do a great job. So uh, check out the Wrestling Estate. A lot of a lot of good Impact stuff. You know, columns for me. We do roundtables every week where our full staff weighs in on topics. Those are really really fun and conversational and and easy to read. So check out the Wrestling Estate. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Dave Writes Junk. And I think those are all the plugs that I can stomach to giving right now. Yeah. Um, so I guess uh, we'll see you when we see ya. Um, bye. Peace out. Can there be any sin in sin, sin? Where is the good in good? Bye.